0: I, I want you to be patient with me, because I'm going to read uh, a very gloomy passage of the Bible. I won't read it all, uh, but I'm going, I'm going to read it. And, uh, and so, you, you, do need, you do need to be patient. You say, it's such a beautiful evening. Is this, is, this, is this the best you could do? Yes. <laughs> uh, this is from Lamentations chapter 3. It begins like this. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago." He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target, his arrow. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Just a brief prayer. Father, uh, your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so we pray that as we think about these things, just briefly now, uh, that you will bring your Word to bear upon each of our lives in the way that is apropos our own circumstances and our thinking and our wondering. And in some cases, our fearfulness and our lack of hope. Accomplish your purposes, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, one of the recurring themes, of course, of the Bible is simply the faithfulness of God, uh, that he is one hundred percent reliable. When we read the Bible, God is presented to us in that way. Um, From the very beginning, in the Pentateuch, uh, in the words of Moses, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and exercises his judgments. Uh, the psalmist uh, sings of the faithfulness of God again and again. And uh, the faithfulness of God stands in stark contrast to the lack of faithfulness or the unfaithfulness that is represented uh, in in man, uh, in the interchange uh, involving uh, Balak uh, and Balaam uh, in the book of Numbers, uh, you have this amazing statement, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And perhaps the most memorable statement— of uh, God's faithfulness is the one uh, that came just towards the end of what I've been reading here. Uh, Lamentations, as you know, um, is the work of Jeremiah. Uh, Lamentations chapter 3 is right in the middle of the book of Lamentations. And Lamentations chapter 3 is an acrostic uh, in Hebrew. Each of the three verses uh, uh, begins—not just the first Uh, but each of the three verses begins with the first letter and the second letter and the third letter and so on of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's done in that way so that at least Hebrew readers will find it uh, to be memorable. And the thing that is quite striking about that most famous uh, of verses is the context in which it's found. And I would wager that many of us have paid scant attention to the context. Not because we're indolent, but just because it's such a pop-out and a pop-up verse, such a sort of memorable verse that you carve onto a piece of wood or you carry around with you or you put up on a wall somewhere. It it is so striking that it is very easy and very absorbable uh, to be removed from its context. But, of course, it is the very context which gives significance uh, to the statement. And I want to say just— Three things concerning it. Uh, first of all, that it is a comfortable word in a most uncomfortable setting. A comfortable word in a most uncomfortable setting. Uh, Lamentations, obviously, is a series of laments, as the title would suggest. The historical context uh, involves uh, the nation of Israel. And what uh, Jeremiah is lamenting over is the result of Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem and the impact that has played out in the people of God. And Jeremiah, the writer, describes it in a way that he almost takes it on, on himself. It's as though uh, the, these poems that are then written um, are expressive of a burden that is unique to him. Clearly, it isn't unique to him, but it is of a significance in the way in which it is portrayed. And it is for that reason that when we read it, we can read it uh, very helpfully without actually even considering what was going on uh, during the exile. Now, I suggest to you that uh, the, the darkness and the bleakness and the background of it uh, makes the statement of God's faithfulness all the better if if we were putting music behind this, um, as some of you have, may have seen um, at Eternity's Gate, the Van the Van Gogh movie, and uh, it hasn't received a very wide distribution. I I read a review of it the other day, and it wasn't exactly commendatory, but nevertheless, it's it's worth it's worth viewing for a, for a number of reasons. But one of the things that's most striking about it is the discordant, atonal nature of the piano music that plays behind uh, many of these beautiful scenes. And so, when, when you view uh, some of these uh, scapes, uh, landscapes, uh, the, the piano music behind it is jarring. And you say to yourself, Well, goodness gracious, couldn't they have had a nice melody line or something? Well, the whole point was that the jarring nature of the music set the context for the artwork that was being displayed and created by van Gogh himself. And if you were to put lamentations to music, you would probably use a bagpipe. And not not a, not a lot of bagpipes, you know, for a military display, but just a lone bagpipe. If you've ever heard a lone bagpipe, you can understand why the Scots used the jolly instrument, when they went to fight against the English, because it scared the bejabbers out of the English before they'd even fired anything. And in fact, the Irish uh, reputedly gave the bagpipes to the Scots as a joke. And the Scots, we never got a joke. And, and we've been, we've been playing, them, playing them ever since. So, if you imagine, it, it, would be a, it would be a lament. It would be in a, in a minor key, uh, akin to Psalm 88 where the psalmist says, You have put me in the depths of the pit, in regions dark and deep. In fact, the the book itself begins, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Won't you look and see? Is there any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me? which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Now, here's the part that makes it difficult and, at the same time, wonderful, because it refuses to allow us to squirrel out of suffering, sadness, pain, disappointment, illness, and fear, by ascribing it to an alien and a dark force. As if somehow or another, if God Himself was really as sovereign as we would like Him to be, then He would and we with Him would not then have been defeated by this experience through which we are now coming. The Bible says the absolute reverse of that. The Bible challenges the notion that we're involved in a random universe that we are being tossed around, as it were, like a corkscrew on a sea of chance, or that we are being held in the grip of blind and deterministic forces over which we've got no control at all. And so the reaction to that, then, is either escapism or is a form of fatalism. Jeremiah says, The problem and the solution lies in the fact that God— is responsible for this God is responsible for it now i 'm not going to go all the way through it because I can see some of you are staring at me already, and you 're thinking, Goodness gracious, I thought we came in here to try and be encouraged and It's getting worse by the minute, but if you go back through i don't supp- I don't don 't read this at three o 'clock in the morning if you wake up i don 't suggest that uh, but but if you do read it, then you see how straightforward he is, this picture of being broken and and the, the wasting away of skin. It's a, it's a dreadful picture, isn't it, of being walled in so that I can't escape. That somehow or another, I cry, but it's, it's like I'm in a telephone kiosk, and, it, and I can't be heard. I can't hear my own voice. You ever cry in the night like that? The metaphors of he, he, is, a, he is like a bear lying wait for me, tripping me up. I've become a laughingstock. People look at me, and they say, Oh, you're a believer in this living God? Look at you, filled with bitterness. And not having a nice meal like this, but actually eating gravel, bereft of peace, forgotten what happiness is. So, I say to myself, My endurance has perished, and so has my hope. From the Lord, that's about as low as you can get, I think. I don't think I can uh, make it through another night. And not so long ago, I heard I heard uh, a conversation with Joni Erickson Tada, who, as you know, has been a quadriplegic since what her late teens. And she, in the interview, she described how, in the middle of the night, and this is not so long ago, in the middle of the night, she said to her helper. I cannot face another hour. I cannot live. I have no hope." And her helper was able to, if you like, talk her off the ledge to bring her back. She had no songs to sing. She didn't have any real uh, joy in that moment. She just felt completely overwhelmed what I like about that is the honesty of it, and what I like about the Bible is the truthfulness of it. What I can't stand is a form of Christian expression which offers to people some kind of strange panacea for everything, whereby Christians, if they really get serious about being Christian, then they never cry anymore, then they're never overwhelmed anymore, then they never face distress anymore. And nobody believes that. It is unbelievable. It is literally unbelievable. It is both not true to the Bible, and it isn't true to our human experience. Therefore, we do ourselves no favors, and nobody else favors when we do it. You say, well, this sounds rather uh, remorse—morose. No. But can can you imagine? Can you imagine at Auschwitz, and somebody says, they're all, there they are, bitter and broken, scarred, their skin wasting away. And someone says, does anybody have anything they'd like to share? Someone says, well, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to sing a song. First, you would? Okay, go ahead. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, God, my Father, there is no shadow of truth. So you're out of your mind. This is a comfortable word in an uncomfortable setting. Secondly, and I won't take as long on number two, it is an encouraging word for discouraged people. An encouraging word for discouraged people. How does the writer move— from the hopelessness in verse 18 to the expression of confidence in verse 22 and 23. Verse 18, My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Verse 21, so that's 19, 20, within two verses, within three verses, By this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Oh, goodness gracious, make up your mind, would you? You just you just said that your endurance has gone, and that you and that you have no hope. And now, and now you said, and I have hope. Well, how is hope revived? Well, it is actually re, it is reborn out of grief. But what happened between verse eighteen and verse twenty two? Nothing. You know, it wasn't there somebody somebody gave him a call and said, Would you like to to go on vacation? No, he's still in the exact same predicament. The circumstances haven't changed. They are, as reported, unspeakably bleak. Nothing has looked hopeful, possible, worthwhile, and certainly not comfortable. But this I call to mind. In other words, I'm starting to think about something. This I call to mind. I know that life is hard, but I also remind myself that God is good. Uh, Some of you are of the vintage that you will remember Lynn Anderson, something of a one-hit wonder. This would be a test in any other kind of uh, Friday night party. But what was the great hit that Lynn Anderson had? No takers. So I shall tell you. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. Along with the sunshine, there's got to be a little rain sometimes. Remember that refrain? She made a lot of money with that song. And I, I often sing it when I—especially if you grow up in Glasgow, it rains all the time, so you, you're singing it all the time. But this is what is being conveyed here so straightforwardly. The writer is leading the way by deliberately reflecting— on what he knows of God, on what he knows of God. In other words, in, 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 uh, in um, aeronautical terms, he's flying the instruments. He's flying the instruments. So you're at 38,000 feet, and it's just turbulent as all can be, and you're in deep cloud, and you can't see a thing. You don't know whether you're upside down or the right way up. You feel this, you feel that, you feel the next thing. What is absolutely essential is that the man who's in control of this is flying the instruments so that he is bringing to bear upon the feelings the realities and the objective facts which are true. And so that is exactly what Jeremiah does. He says, This is what I call to mind. I call to mind the fact of the steadfast love of God, the cursed love of God, the covenant love of God, that enters into a covenant relationship with his people. And it is on account of that that I'm able to say to myself, Although everything that I've already written in this poem is true— that steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And his mercies never come to an end. They never come to an end. They are new every morning. That's why that wonderful uh, hymn, which Fernando Ortega sings so wonderfully in one of his uh, CDs, ought to be an encouragement to each of us. When all thy mercies, O my God, my rising soul surveys. When all thy mercies— my rising soul service, transported with the view I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise. Yeah, but what about this? No, I understand that. But I'm not focused on that just now. I'm focused on the mercy of God. Unnumbered comforts to my soul your tender care bestows. Why? Well, it's because of the Lord's great love that we're not consumed because his mercies never fail. Striking, isn't it, that the, that the significance and the evidence and the proof that God still loved his people was seen in the fact that they weren't consumed? It is, it's a negative, you see, stated positively. How do I know? How do I know that you really, really love me? Because I haven't been consumed. And in Christ, we will never be consumed. I am the resurrection and the life, says Jesus. He that believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Then he says to the girl, he says, Do you believe this? I mean, that really is the $64,000 question, isn't it? Because that, then, that eventuality addressed by the mercy of God doesn't remove any of this stuff, but this I call to mind. You talk to yourself. I, 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 I hope you do, purposefully, you know, cognitively. I've, I've noticed, I caught myself recently, I, I, I thought I saw my grandmother in the mirror, but it was me. <laughs> and do and, and you know what I, what I found? I was listening to somebody talk, they were speaking to me, and I was moving my mouth. Have you started to do that yet? once you get a certain age, you will. It's, and I was—but I wasn't saying anything. I was—I said, Goodness gracious, my grandmother is here. And I said, No, you are her. Now, you see, our very frailty, our flesh and our heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, that. Therefore I have hope. Uh, we, we, hope is such a devalued word, but when the Bible is using hope like this, it's, it's speaking about certainty in God's future provision based on his truth and his faithfulness. Why do you have hope? Because of God's truth and faithfulness. So, along with Jeremiah, we face these things. We can say, I don't like it this way. I don't know why it's this way, but I have hope. So, it is a comfortable word in an uncomfortable setting. And it is at the same time uh, an encouraging word for discouraged people. And finally, and just briefly, it is a Christ centered word for a self-centered world—a Christ-centered word for a self-centered world. Uh, the opening line of the chapter helps us with this. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. If you know your Bible at all, this is, this is encapsulated in one person and one person only Namely the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read Isaiah 53, he was wounded for my transgressions, he was bruised for my iniquities, the chastisement that brought me peace was upon him. By his stripes I am I am healed. But yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. So this wasn't seven the devil won seven nothing at the cross. Christ is sovereign in these things, even as he bows beneath the darkness of that day. He's the man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. He's the one from whom the people hide their faces. Remember, the proof of God's mercy is in the fact, says Jeremiah, that we have not been consumed. In other words, we don't get what we actually deserve. And that's because the Lord Jesus Christ was consumed, was covered in shame and in all of our darkness and deadness, in order that in him we might actually be raised immortal to a new day. We sometimes sing here at Parkside, don't don't we? And when I face my final day, he will not leave me in the grave. Or I will rise, he will call me home. Incidentally, I, there's a lot of these songs that I sing that I'm changing the words as I'm going along. Um, just so you know, um, nobody cares enough to change them. But I, I, I'm not a fan of uh, the line, I, I do not fear that final night, or I do not fear that final day, or whatever it is. I never sing that. I sing, and though I fear that final day. I think there's something wrong with you if you don't fear that final day, because death is the last enemy to be destroyed. So, therefore, to acknowledge the reality of that, and not to try and say something silly that nobody believes, but to say, but this I call to mind, that the ultimate expression of the mercy of God is found in the person of his dearly beloved Son, the one who says to the people, Why don't you come to me, O you who are heavy-laden, and I'll give you rest? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The verbs are straightforward, aren't they? Come, come to me. What does it mean to come to Christ? It means to come and acknowledge who he is, that he's a Savior, a Lord, and a King. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke, What does that mean? Well, the picture's straightforward. He worked in Joseph's carpenter shop. They presumably made yokes for the oxen. Maybe maybe they had a sign. Maybe their marketing slogan was, My yoke is easy. (laughs) Joseph says, If you want to buy a yoke, you should buy one of my yokes. They won't chaff the neck of your oxen. Your oxen will be thrilled to be yoked by one of my yokes. That's what Jesus is saying. You won't chafe under my yoke. My yoke. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me who I am, what I've done, what it means, how the issue of suffering and difficulty and cancer and pain and loss and bereavement and disagreement and failure and fear and all these things—learn from me. And you will find rest for your souls. So we're not going to finish with Lynn Anderson. No, we're done with her. We should go directly to Mahalia Jackson. Oh, for, for the day when in heaven I can say, Mahalia, sing me one of those songs. Every so often when I'm in my car, I just play her really, really loudly and sing along with her. I imagine I'm in her group, you know. And you hear her voice. Why? Why should I be discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart seem lonely and long for heaven and home, when Jesus is my captain? My constant friend is he, for his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. He who did not get—he who gave his own Son for us, how will he not also—Romans 8.32—how will he not also, with him, freely give us all things? Loved ones, this is me finished now. But let me say to you what McShane used to say to his congregation. He died at twenty-nine. I am a dying man speaking to dying men and women. And the only answer is found in only one, and that is in Christ, in all of his grace, in all of his loveliness, in all of his compassion. And it is he who bids us come to him would ever repulse such an invitation? Father, thank you. Thank you that the Bible is so realistic. Thank you that it's so straightforwardly honest, so uh, nerve-janglingly appropriate. Thank you that when we take all these bits and pieces—the They bring us again and again to your dearly beloved Son. Thank you that he is the one uh, who is the man who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And so we pray that as we think of um, the finitude of our lives, as we think about the frailty of our existence, we're not interested in becoming morbid, but we do want to acknowledge how important it is for us to allow our um, feeble and frail psyches uh, to be recalibrated by a reminder of your amazing grace and the fact that you are utterly reliable, and that your mercies never come to an end. Hear us, O God. We commend to you one another and those whom we love, those whose names we've mentioned, as some who were once with us. We thank you for their memory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Alistair Begg. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Alistair's teaching ministry by visiting truthforlife.org.